I'm Eric Bricker, and I've been a psychotherapist for over 25 years. One thing I can tell you for certain is that no one makes it through life unscathed. At some point, many of us will rely on the trusted counsel of another person to help us navigate difficult times or to reconcile a troubled past. Whether conventional or unconventional, professional or informal, there are a lot of different forms that helping relationships can take. This podcast is an exploration into what makes these relationships work. Who are the people that help us? How do they help us? And what do people need help with? My hope is to uncover as much as I can about this very human phenomenon, and I hope that you'll join me. This is the Good Counsel Podcast. I'm Eric Bricker, and this is the Good Counsel Podcast. Today, I'm going to be sharing some of my thoughts and observations about mortality, grief, and society. So I want to say this to begin with. I think that we live in what I would consider to be a death-denying culture. From the time that we're born, children are assimilated into expectations of society, what is expected of them, and what they can expect to experience through a process of socialization. And there are these societal institutions that are responsible for informing and educating us. So by the time a kid reaches first grade, they know what a family is. Hopefully they know their own address. They know that there are different types of families. They're informed that fruits and vegetables are better than sugary snacks. They know what a job is. They might know what a career is. Hopefully, they know what a dentist is. They can write their own name in cursive. But who's responsible for teaching us about our own mortality? When I think back about my own childhood experience, I can't remember who it was that taught me about death, which is really kind of interesting in a way, because the experience of death is universal to all people. I didn't learn about that in school. I didn't learn about it in Sunday school. I didn't learn about it in Little League. I didn't learn about it in summer camp. Didn't learn about it in the Cub Scouts. One of the other concepts that children learn in first grade is how to tell time. But what no one teaches the children is that time is actually quantifiable and limited in a way. And that that limitation of time actually defines our lifespan. 2,000 years ago, when the Romans were still using sundials to tell time, they had Latin inscriptions on the sundials, many of which sort of tied the concept of mortality to time. So there would be inscriptions on the sundials that would say things like, enjoy the hour, it may be your last, or it's later than you think. That's my personal favorite. I don't think that it would be socially acceptable in our culture to have clocks in schools that say, enjoy the hour, it may be your last. I'm just suggesting that there are societies historically that have very much influenced our society that embraced the relationship between mortality and time in a way that I don't think we do. And I think the reason for that is that one, people didn't really expect to live long lives, Roman society was a very violent society. People died young. 
You didn't have medicines, you didn't have antibiotics. Essentially, an infected paper cut could be a life-threatening experience. You know, an untreated sinus infection could kill a person. So I think people had more of a realistic sense of mortality and death as a concept that was integrated into the social fabric around them. I'm not suggesting that this is necessarily the best way to teach children about the concept of mortality and time. I guess the point that I'm making here is that there were societies that have heavily influenced our society where there was a greater comfort level in discussing this concept of mortality or that the idea of time and mortality was more integrated into the fabric of the society than what we see in America in 2024. And my curiosity around that is that if we are this death-denying culture that avoids conversations about death, how does this then affect our experience of grief and loss? I guess what I'm suggesting here is because this subject matter is often unaddressed as a part of our developmental process and a part of our socialization, that people often learn about grief and loss when they're actually experiencing it. And that is often the first exposure someone has to this experience. And emotionally, it's really quite different than any other human experience. And so I think people are left in such pain and confusion in some way because they have nothing else really to compare the experience to. And those are questions that often come up from my clients that are dealing with these really tragic losses, is that they're so overwhelmed with what they're experiencing, and the experience is so unlike any other experience, that they often wonder if what they're experiencing is normal, if they're going crazy, if they're experiencing the grief and loss correctly. These are the questions that people are often asking themselves. And I do think the fact that we are a death-denying culture and that we don't do a lot to socialize young people around mortality does have some bearing on the way people experience mortality later on in their lives when people around them die. In 1969, grief and loss researcher Karen Kubler-Ross released her famous publication called On Death and Dying. And this publication gave us probably what is the most repeated and best known conceptualization of the grieving process. This is where we got our five phases of grief, denial, anger, depression, bargaining, and acceptance. According to the theory, these emotions don't necessarily have to occur in order so that a person who is grieving can experience them in any order. Here's one of the problems with this. The book Death and Dying is based on Karen Kubler-Ross's research on people who were dying from terminal illnesses. So these phases of grief were experiences that these people were having as they were facing their own mortality from these terminal illnesses. And they're facing the inevitability of their own death, the experiences of denial, anger, depression, bargaining, and acceptance. It certainly makes sense, and I believe wholly that this is what a person experiences as they're coming to grips 
with their own end of life. It was really landmark research and something that changed the zeitgeist and the way in which we even talked about mortality and death, that someone had written something that became a bestseller and is frequently quoted and became our conceptualization of what grief and loss is. It was the first time I think we had something like that in our society. So Kubler-Ross is really like the pioneer in this work. Here's the issue that I have. These phases of grief and loss, denial, anger, depression, bargaining, and acceptance, seem to be universally accepted as the phases of grief that people experience. So you're sort of saying that the experience of a terminally ill individual is the same thing as the experience of an individual who has lost a loved one. And in my mind, I think that's two very different things. I think the experience of a person with a terminal illness who is facing their own mortality and dealing with their own end-of-life issues is not the same thing as a bereaved loved one who has just lost a parent or a child or a spouse or a close friend or co-worker or relative. I think it's two different things. And yet for the past 50 years, these phases of grief have kind of been adopted and accepted even among behavioral health professionals as kind of the standard universal experience that people have around grief and loss. It's interesting to me. I go back to this idea of a death-denying culture, and I think to myself, it would make sense that the first time we are given something that can kind of explain and conceptualize the phenomenon of mortality and death and the grieving process, we're quick to accept it. It's easily digestible, easy to understand. And for 50 years, in the mainstream discussion, it kind of goes unchallenged that there may be more to the phenomenon of loss than what this discussion, these phases, are offering us as a complete explanation. And my reason for that is not that the researcher or the book fell short in any way. It's just that our society kind of universally adopted this idea that was normed on the wrong population. So again, the experience of a person with a terminal illness who's facing their own mortality is not the same thing as the experience of a loved one who is dealing with a recent loss. And that's all I'm saying. And again, if you go back and you think about what I said earlier about death-denying culture, it's almost as if we took the first thing that made sense and just accepted that as an explanation, and we've continued in the mainstream of society to repeat that over and over again without that notion being challenged. Catherine Shear is a professor of psychiatry at the Columbia School of Social Work and Columbia College of Physicians and Surgeons. She's also a founding director of what used to be known for the Center of Complicated Grief at Columbia University. That center is now known as the Center for Prolonged Grief at Columbia University. She's considered among the most preeminent modern researchers of grief and has kind of reconceptualized a lot of our thoughts about the grieving process through her extensive research. 
at Columbia University. One of the core concepts uh, surrounding her research is this idea that grief doesn't occur in stages, that uh, there's really no research or evidence to suggest that denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance are these universal experiences that people have when they're grieving the loss of a loved one. Catherine Shear is an advocate for informing the public about this more modernistic view of the grieving process and was one of the lead advocates and researchers that helped bring this new diagnosis into the revised version of the DSM-5. And this diagnosis is prolonged grief. And this is a pretty big accomplishment. It's sort of a big deal. And again, it helps to reconceptualize our thoughts of grief and the idea that there may be this more traumatic form of grief, this prolonged grief experience that is separated from a typical grief experience, although there really is no typical grief experience, but that there may be this more traumatic form of grief or the grief process that is different from what might be considered a normal grieving process, this idea of prolonged grief. So she's a pretty important researcher who has had an impact on how grief and loss is treated and how we're thinking about it more currently and in this modern way, and also offering these ideas about how people who are suffering severe grief reactions or may be more appropriately placed in the category of having prolonged grief might be more effectively treated in psychotherapy. An important part of Catherine Shear's conceptualization of the grieving process is rooted in the idea of attachment. And attachment theory suggests that human beings, like other social animals, are capable of pair bonding, and that there's an inherent biological imperative that favors our chances for survival, so it's kind of baked into the idea of natural selection, that having a secure bond with a caregiver or a parent, having a secure bond with a mate, having a secure bond with other members of our pack, so to speak, increases our chances for survival and is in some way just baked into our DNA, even in our society as it exists today. Catherine Shear conceptualizes grief as an attachment rupture and the experience of people who have attachment issues and are prone to fears of abandonment and rejection sensitivities, and they have these intense reactions, that's not that far off from the types of reactions that people who are in the severe throes of uh, an intense grieving process, what they experience. So she conceptualizes it around attachment and bonding and the severing of an attachment. That's the way she thinks about significant grief and loss that a person experiences. That's like a severed attachment. Part of what people experience during the grieving process is often you'll get these intense reactions of guilt and a lot of questions about, did I do enough? Should I have done more? Did I care enough? And in Catherine Shear's conceptualization around the idea of attachment and bonding, that's almost the most normal thing in the world because 
part of bonding, part of attachment, part of our expression of bonding is our ability to care for one another, to commit these loving acts that suggest a close proximity and connection to the other person, to do things for people that we love. I think dogs make excellent pets for people because their social structure is in a way similar to ours in that we are highly dependent upon each other and function best in in groups or or packs or families. And I, I think that's why dogs make the best pets. Now, again, I'm, I'm partial to dogs, so that's, that's strictly opinion and preference based, but I think the part about the, the bonding is, is actually true. So you think about your dog licking you and people will say, you know, oh, my, my dog is giving me, me kisses. And that's not really quite what that is, right? When a dog licks you, that is not a kiss. That is not in any way an equivalent to a kiss, but here's what it is. Dogs will clean, like a a parent dog might clean its puppy. So it'll lick the puppy to clean it. But that's also sort of an affectionate thing. And so if you have a dog that licks you, it might be because you just ate a sandwich and it smells the sandwich on your hand. The dog's licking, you know, trying to get a taste of what it smells on your hand. But at the same time, the dog's not going to lick you if he doesn't like you. And so it's this idea that, you know, those that are familiar to the dog, those that the dog is comfortable with, they might lick them. And in some ways, this is what I do to my puppies that I care for. The caring for is the expression of the love and the bond. So when the bond is severed, the person who has had the loss is likely to kind of go to that responsibility of caring for their loved one and start asking themselves questions about why I didn't do enough or what I did or what I didn't do or did I cause this or because it's only natural to think that way about someone with whom you share a bond if caring for and doing for and taking care of is a part of the bonding and pairing and nurturing process. And this is why people who have lost loved ones often experience such guilt. And I like that conceptualization, having experienced it with so many grieving clients. So what I wanna talk about now is really the goal of therapy in the grieving process. Because part of my hope here is to instill some idea of hope to anybody who's listening to this that might actually be suffering from grief, that there is a pathway towards moving through the grieving process. And I'm careful with the words that I use when I describe that. I'm saying moving through the grieving process. I didn't say getting past the grieving process. Because quite frankly, I don't know that anybody gets past the grieving process. I think significant losses of individuals with whom we had significant and important bonds, there's always going to be some remnants of pain associated with that loss. However, I think it is quite possible to get to a place where that pain is less and that your life becomes more manageable. 
than it might be while you're in this intense grieving process, wondering how you're going to go on in your life without this other individual. So I want you to think about it like this. When somebody dies, that's not the end of our relationship with that individual. Most people live lives that are incomplete. And when I say incomplete, what I mean is that you probably had some plan that you're not going to be able to get to of what you're going to do tomorrow or next week or next year. And those plans will never come to fruition. There are phone calls that needed to be made. There are conversations that needed to be had. Some of these discussions have been put off and avoided. And now when mortality comes, the opportunities for I'll do this tomorrow have ended. There is no tomorrow. And things are as we leave them in that moment. And I think what that creates is this somewhat unbalanced ledger of incomplete interactions that we have in these different relationships. In the same way, there's this unbalanced ledger that's left with the people that have been close to us that survive us. So there are these kind of incomplete communications, these incomplete interactions that have been left unaddressed with seemingly no opportunity to address them. And I think a big and important part of the grieving process and the recovery is to recognize that when people have died, we still have a relationship with them. When people have died, that's not the end of our relationship with them. We continue to have a relationship with that person, but the relationship exists in a different way. And a big part of the grieving process is the work that we do to balance the ledger of incomplete communications and incomplete interactions so that we reconceptualize this relationship and have this person, my parent, my spouse, my child, my good friend, whoever it is, continue to occupy an important presence in my life, even though they are no longer here. Because I'll be thinking about that person and in a sense, interacting with that person, whether they are with me or not with me. So that's where we get into the exercises of balancing the ledger, writing the letters, you know, working towards forgiveness. And that's a, that's a real important thing and a difficult task to complete. And I want to share a little bit about my ideas of forgiveness, because I think this is really an important thing to discuss, because I think oftentimes the survivors of loss, those who have lost a loved one, often have difficulty forgiving themselves and sometimes have difficulty forgiving their loved one for having abandoned them, so to speak. I'm going to talk a little bit about the work of Lawrence Kohlberg. Lawrence Kohlberg was a university professor and researcher on the topic of morality. And in his stages of moral development, he kind of conceptualized that, that the idea of morality and moral reasoning is something that could be quantified. And so at the lowest level, is an obedience or punishment orientation. So the idea is things are really only wrong if you get in trouble for them. That's a little bit like the moral orientation of someone who's antisocial or kind of a criminal thinker. 
And in the middle is more of what we consider like this conventional morality, where most of us uh, conceptualize uh, our life in reciprocal relationships and the belief in law and order. And beyond that, at the very highest level, is this post-conventional morality. And at the height of post-conventional morality is what we call universal ethical principles. And that is where somebody is so committed to principle and ethic that they are able to empathize with, understand the motivations of, and be completely forgiving of people that harm them directly because they're so committed to the idea of this principle of loving kindness, right? So that might be somebody like Jesus Christ, Martin Luther King, Mahatma Gandhi, someone like this. Someone that is so committed to the principle of love and kindness that they are able to empathize with, understand, and hold no animus towards their oppressors. When I think about this idea of like a complete forgiveness, that's sort of what I think about. This universal ethical principle where I can overlook my own injury in service of this ideal. And just to say it like this, people who have adopted the universal ethical principles, according to Kohlberg's research, it's very, very rare. In fact, a lot of Kohlberg's critics have argued whether or not this highest level of post-conventional moral reasoning even exists. So what I'm saying, it's very, very rarefied air to be able to completely forgive and forget when people have harmed us the most. Most of us will have some degree of difficulty with that. And that's part of the struggle of the grieving process, particularly when there is a feeling of abandonment or perhaps anger surrounding the individual who is no longer with us or perhaps even the ability to like forgive ourselves. And there's this whole other element of guilt about being angry with people who have passed because who talks ill of the dead? So we call that, or I call that, the halo effect that immediately when someone dies, it becomes inappropriate to say or to even think negative thoughts about that individual and their behavior. It's almost like when that person dies, you have to kind of forgive all the wrongdoings. And I think that that could be very difficult for us, especially when our emotional ledger uh, with that individual is very much unbalanced. So that's a big part of what we often deal with in grief and loss. And this comes up a lot around incidents of suicide, and overdose deaths where there's an extreme difficulty in managing the anger surrounding the person's actions and an inability to confront or discuss or to get an explanation about the person's behavior. And that too is a much longer conversation around these stigmatized deaths that I think I'm probably gonna save for a different day but I just wanted to kind of touch on this idea of forgiveness because I think it's pretty important. So if I can't get to forgiveness, if I can't let go of my anger 
towards somebody else or my anger toward myself. Here's what's available to me. This is, this is what I can start to do. And what I can start to do is move in the direction of compassion. And what I mean by compassion is it's the simple idea of recognizing suffering. It's just the simple recognition of suffering. It's the simple recognition of suffering in the person who's departed, that there was suffering in their life that perhaps led them to some of the behaviors and decisions and the way in which they conducted themselves with respect to us. And I can have compassion for myself, realizing that I am now suffering and that I can be intentional about the idea of the commitment to not suffer. And starting at compassion could be that first step toward the movement toward forgiveness. It's a lot of work, not gonna lie to you. If you're listening to this and you're a person who's been impacted by these things, I just wanna be clear that I do believe it's possible to get to a place where at least you're moving in the direction of forgiveness toward the other person and forgiveness toward yourself. And that a lot of the work that we do is about being more compassionate in our perspectives as we try to reconceptualize the relationship that we have with this person who is no longer with us in a physical form, but will continue to remain with us in our lives. And I think for me, that probably about does it. So I hope that you found this interesting and helpful, and I appreciate you taking the time to listen to these thoughts and ideas I have around grief, loss, society, and my own personal experiences in working with people who have been impacted by grief and loss. Thank you very much. 